welcome to this month's edition of the Archimedes podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. As you'll remember, Archimedes is the evidence-based section that addresses clinical queries, searches for the best available evidence, critically appraises that, and brings it together with a clinical bottom line. All of our Archimedes questions are submitted by clinical authors, and they're often accompanied by real clinical questions that generated them in the first place. As with previous podcasts, we'd be really looking forward to feedback on what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of, and whether you'd like us to undertake this exercise very differently. We'll start this month, as with the last, with a short section about critical appraisal and the practice of evidence-based medicine. This month, it's getting it straight from the start. Archimedes has been around for more than a decade now, presenting clinical queries and the appraisal of evidence that emerges and leading on to a clinical conclusion. But what's strikingly common from us that are practicing in the evidence-based field is that many questions can start in a bit of a muddle and that one failure to get an evidence-based answer is actually a failure to ask an evidence-based question. There was a recent transdisciplinary teaching session and one anaesthetist there summarised the entirety of EBM question formulation as does drug A compared to drug B make outcome X happen more or less in patient group Z? Now, this is a quite brilliant anagram of the PICO formulation, which, as you'll remember, is patient intervention comparison outcome into intervention comparison outcome patient group. Now, if you can't make your question fit that PICO or ICPO formula or, or fudge it to fit, then you need to unpack it because it might be more than one question. Now, therapeutics are straightforward, but in terms of, say, something like a diagnostic test, it might be a tad trickier. However, have a go at does super TB detector kit compared with proper microbiological stuff indicate the presence of mycobacterium tuberculosis infection in patients with a decent immune system? Or if you're looking at something that's a prognostic feature, does the presence of clinical choriamniitis make it more likely that NEC will occur in this premature neonate? Now, if you hit a complex question, something like, what's the best diagnostic test for leukaemia? You can either head at this in a textbook-style review article, which might make some statements that you can then turn into EBM questions and check the evidence behind, or it can allow you to, to break it down into a series of sub-questions, such as, is full blood count an accurate way at diagnosing and ruling out acute leukaemias? Or is it the blood film? Or is it six-colour flow cytometry that's the real way forward? There are other questions like, should I do a CT in teenagers before I do a lumbar puncture in them in order to rule out intracranial pressure? Such questions might be better asked in a series. For instance, if you first ask, how good are clinical features at indicating raised intracranial pressure in adolescents? That might actually stop you from needing to ask the question about how good is CT at ruling out raised intracranial pressure? Now, if you do get your PICO or, or your ICOP straight from the start, you're well on the way to asking an evidence-based question, and that puts you in a good place to get an evidence-based answer. Now, the first of our research reports this month comes from Anita Mercer at the Hull York Medical School. Her case is one of a six-week-old baby boy who presents with hypertropic pyloric like his dad had many years before him. Now his dad had a terrible time with surgery 
and for reasons around that, doesn't want his son to undergo the same sort of operation. And the registrar looking after the child is inquiring about the possibility of the use of atropine to treat pyloric stenosis. Now this isn't something that I'd heard of, but Anita went away and did an extensive search of electronic literature databases and pulled 14 articles that were relevant to the question. None of these were randomised controlled trials, they were all either case series or cohorts of patients. And the atropine that was used ranged in terms of the dose that was given, the route, whether it was intravenous or oral NG, uh, an enteral route, and indeed the duration of time that the treatment was given for. But even with those variations, there was great success using atropine, with an average of about 85% using a meta-analytic technique. And all of those 14 studies, except for one, where the description was one drop of an atropine-containing formulation, all of the other studies showed a success rate in excess of 75%, with the vast majority of them sitting uh, well above 80% in terms of their likely long-term cure of hypertrophic stenosis. This is a surprising finding, but when you set it alongside a straightforward and relatively uncomplicated operation, atropine is still not the treatment of choice for pyloric stenosis, but perhaps for infants in whom an operation is contraindicated, or if you're working in an area where surgery on small infants isn't safe, then atropine gives you a relatively safe way of treating the condition that you couldn't do otherwise. The other report comes from Amanda Gui, working in the Children's Hospital at Melbourne. This concerns a case of a Sudanese immigrant to Australia, a well lad who's HIV negative, but whose skin test comes back positive for TB and has no other findings suggestive of active TB infection, and so the diagnosis of latent TB infection is made. Now, I wasn't aware that latent TB can turn into proper TB infection in up to 40% of cases, and that's the reasoning behind why it's treated aggressively. What the group in Melbourne found is that international guidelines have different recommendations for the treatment of latent TB. The UK's NICE suggests six months monotherapy with isoniazid, or three months with a combination of isoniazid and vampicin. The CDC from America suggests nine months of monotherapy with isoniazid, and the Australian guidelines suggest between six and twelve months of monotherapy with isoniazid. There are concerns that by having a longer length of treatment, you have less adherence and possibly less success, but that by using combination medications, you increase the risk of toxicity, particularly hepatotoxicity, in the setting of rifampicin use. The group went away, performed, again, extensive literature searches, and in this instance, contacted the authors of trials where they had both mixed adult and paediatric data in order to extract the information on just the children. They excluded studies that dealt with HIV-infected patients or those that were exclusively dealing with drug-resistant TB, so focusing on the more usual situation. With those studies, they came to the conclusions that the evidence supports an idea that higher completion rates are reported with shorter courses of combinations of rifampicin and isoniazid compared to the longer courses of isoniazid monotherapy, but that there is no evidence of increased hepatotoxicity with the rifampicin-containing regimes. And it certainly appears that the short combination therapies appear as effective as the long combination therapies. And particularly in settings where you are considering 
adherence or continued adherence over time might be an issue, but it may be more reasonable to go for a shorter combination approach than a longer monotherapy approach. Whilst this isn't a common problem in my practice, it is a tricky problem for many clinicians in many parts of the world and certainly deserves some significant input in an evidence-based way. So that's it for the Archimedes podcast this month. and We look forward to hearing your views either via tweeting us at at ADC underscore BMJ or by leaving a comment on our blog page or emailing us at archdischild at bmj.com. We look forward to hearing from you soon. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.